0: Remain standing, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye, through his poverty, might be rich. You may be seated.
1: Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. I've chosen this morning to think and talk about one of the two middle words in that verse that I just read, which is from 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And that word, of course, you see it there, is Give. And the title that I've given this subject on giving is The Godly Grace of Giving. The Godly Grace of Giving. And you might be thinking, what, is, what does that mean? What is giving? Well, there's lots of different ways that we can give, of course. We often think about time, our time, and our talent, like, helping with the meat canning at Christian Aid Ministries or working in service at Hillcrest Home, places like that. But when the Bible talks about giving there in 2 Corinthians 9-7, it especially has is the thought of giving of our money, of our possessions, of our resources. And the Bible speaks about this at various places, especially in the New Testament, but also in the Old For today, let's just think especially about the portion that Nate just read, 2 Corinthians 8 and the first verses. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is thinking about a certain offering that has been lifted by the various churches in the Gentile world. Now, 2 Corinthians was written in about A.D. 57. Paul was on his third missionary journey, and probably 2 Corinthians was written when Paul was at Ephesus. Acts 19 and so on, and you just might remember that From having studied that just a few months ago uh, on the third missionary journey. Some of that time, that Paul's time on the the second missionary journey and again on the third was spent in the provinces of Macedonia and Achaia. And Macedonia is um, today my uh, in modern day Greece the northern part and Achaia is in the southern part of modern day Greece and through the blessing of the Lord uh, there was various churches founded there and uh, when when Paul talks about and especially I'm thinking about right now about 2nd Corinthians 9 and verse 2 where it talks about Macedonia and Achaia various churches there and these churches decided I wonder how it came to be. I wonder if it was Paul's idea or if it was somebody else's idea that we should lift an offering for the poor people in the churches of Jerusalem. We know know about this offering that was given that was collected and then eventually given to the saints in Jerusalem because there's four New Testament books that talk about that in Acts 24:17 and in the book of Acts maybe it's just that one verse that really talks much about the offering Romans 15 verses 25 to 27 and 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 through 4 talk about Various aspects of that offering that the church has collected. But especially 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And Paul really gave quite a bit of urgency to this offering. And the opportunity that it afforded for the newer Gentile younger churches to give back to the mother church. There was some careful planning and it took quite a long time in, I think a couple times here in chapters eight and nine. Paul would talk about how that it was in progress for a year. And I think it's interesting that in Acts 20, it mentions that there was Seven brothers that went with Paul to deliver the offering, to give the offering to the church at Jerusalem. And so that shows that they were careful and trying to be above reproach and to be accountable. The fact that there was different people that went along. Paul also delivered that personally personally. In spite of the danger that he knew he would be in when he comes to Jerusalem, and I'm, I think I think that that was one of the major reasons that Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem so badly, chapters 20, 21 and in there, because he wanted to give that offering to the church, the needy people at Jerusalem. Again, the book of Acts doesn't say much about that, but I kind of think that had a lot to do with why he wanted to go so badly. And maybe you're wondering, why was an offering necessary to the mother church? Why the most established church? Why was an offering necessary? Well, we do see, there's various clues in the New Testament that there was That the church at Jerusalem was chronically poor. That there was a lot of poor people. Uh, Think about chapter 6. And the widows there. Think about how in chapter 11. Paul and Barnabas had also taken an offering up there. Up to Jerusalem. And one of the reasons certainly was because of persecution. As people came to the Lord. They were often ostracized by their family. And... Various places in the book of Acts we notice. And in the New Testament about the suffering that they would have faced. There was also a famine going on about that time. Or maybe earlier than this. That could still have been having repercussions there. There was lots of widows. And there's a couple. Paul mentions a couple times in the book of Acts. How that he persecuted the church. Early, in earlier days he had persecuted the church and various people were killed and so there might have been well Paul, I think that Paul was still thinking about that and just maybe another reason that they were poor so much was because that their communal experiment that they had earlier in the book early in church history hadn't uh, materialized and worked out like they thought that it maybe should. So what did Paul hope to accomplish by taking this money up to the brothers there at Jerusalem? Well, obviously an expression of love. It was, they needed it, helping with needs. And I think he was thinking too about how that this could help to unite the Jewish and the Gentile factions of the church. All right, so all of that is background as we think about the offering that the Gentile churches contributed, it was all pulled together and then taken up to the church at Jerusalem and given to the needy ones there. That's what Paul is speaking about in Second Corinthians 8, the passage that, that Nate read a few minutes ago. And so let's look again at those verses, that passage and see if there are any principles from back A.D. 57 and the writing of God's word and that portion here, if there's any principles that apply to us here in the 21st century. And I submit that there are indeed. When people give to others of their money, of their resources. You know, and I know, that there can be different reasons for doing that. What might some of those reasons be? Well, there's spiritual love reasons. Um, Other reasons that people give could be um, because they know that they should. Or it could be reasons that we give that they give, that we give, because others expect us to. Others are watching. Um, Others are doing that. It's expected of a Christian. um, Maybe because we could get a good tax break. Maybe, and there's plenty of people that do that. People like George Soros and Bill Gates and people like that. Why do they give so much? They're great. Um, they, They... hand out millions and maybe billions of dollars. And a lot of the reasons that they do it is just to gain influence and to have their ideas perpetuated in society. So there's lots of not so good reasons to give. So when does giving actually become godly grace? giving. Because remember the title is the godly grace of giving. And we've just said that there's different reasons that are not godly. When does giving actually become godly grace giving? Is a question that we could and should ask. And I think that as we look at verse 1 in chapter 8 that when does giving actually become godly grace giving? Well, one reason is, one time is when it's motivated by God's grace. Moreover brethren we do you to wit of the grace of God when when it, when our giving yours and mine is motivated by God's grace then it's actually godly grace giving. See what does grace mean? Grace ha- carries the idea of being given something that we don't deserve. That's grace. And we th- as we think of God's grace, well, he has given us everything so much. So much, much, much that we don't deserve. Spiritual blessings, f- physical blessings, all kinds of blessings, and we don't deserve that. That's grace. God's grace. When we are motivated by God's grace, so he has given us everything, and we just channel that and pass it on to others in need, When our giving is motivated by that, then it's actually godly grace giving. Remember that Jesus said back in Matthew 10, freely you have received, freely give. And John said in 1 John 4.19, we love him because he, because why? Because he first loved us. When our giving is motivated by God's grace, then it's godly grace giving. Ray Pritchard has said that and I read this, let If God has not done anything for you, don't give him a dime. That's right. Don't give him anything. If you feel that God has done nothing for you, then there is no reason to give at all. This is why Christian giving belongs to those who are truly converted through faith in Jesus Christ. If your life has been radically changed, then you have a reason to give. Until that change occurs, you have no reason to give. But if you have met the Lord and through faith have received new life in Christ, then you have a reason to give. We give because we have received from the Lord. So, when we give because of Christ's grace in our life, then it's godly grace giving. Look with me at verse 2 and notice the phrase, a great trial of affliction. A great trial of affliction. So, a secondary way that we know that we, that giving, our giving is actually godly grace giving is if it's done in spite of difficult circumstances. It's easy to give when life is easy, but it's real godly grace giving when we give in spite of difficult circumstances, and these Macedonians were in the midst of that. Notice that it, the word affliction, and notice the word trial. Not only were they in affliction, but it was a trial of affliction, and not only that, but it was a great trial of affliction. We know a little bit about what that trial of affliction was. We can, if we look at Acts 17, we notice in the church at Thessalonica that there was persecution and opposition right away within weeks. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1.6. I'm not going to turn to that. 1 Thessalonians 2.14-15 would give us hints about what kind of affliction it was. It was persecution and suffering from, inflicted by other people. When it's done in spite of difficult circumstances, when we are able, by God's grace, to give, even when we are facing all kinds of trials ourselves, then it's godly grace giving. These Macedonians, in their neediness, they prioritized the needs of others. I think that's so astonishing, and I think that's so wonderful. And I think that's so much for us, for me, and for you. When it's done in spite of difficult circumstances, then it's done for the right reasons. Then it's godly grace-giving. Still in verse 2, Notice that they didn't only have a great trial of affliction, but they were also in the midst of deep poverty. So the church at Jerusalem, the mother church, was poor, but so were these people, the Macedonians. They were also, well, they had deep, they were experiencing deep poverty. I think down in Achaia, especially the church at Corinth, were pretty rich and more well to do but up north further especially in Thessalonica and maybe in Philippi and Berea and places the churches there deep poverty and that didn't keep them from giving now the typical american in 2020 might say something like this so There's a toilet paper shortage. We'd better grab a bunch while we can. We'd better hoard. These Macedonian Christians around 57 AD, they said, we hardly have anything left. Let's give it away before it gets away. Godly grace giving. Did you know that being poor or... Not being able to scrape much money together right now is not a reason for us not to give to the needs of others. I'm thinking about a lady that I heard about who, and I don't know all the details of this story, but something like this is how it might have happened. There was this lady that didn't have that much, but she realized that she would like to give. It was expected of her to give. And she didn't have much money at all. She only had two coins. But she de- decided to go to the temple and give. And at the temple in that day, there were various boxes to get that you could give to this need or to that need. Someone said that there might have been seventeen boxes, kind of trumpet shaped boxes at the temple in those days. And one of them said for the poor, and another one of another one of those was for the sacrifices. And I'm just imagining that as she wended her way to the temple that day, she was wondering, which am I going to give? So I have two coins. Which am I going to give? Am I going to give to the poor? See, I'm already poor. But I could give to other people that are in need. Or should I give for the sacrifices? Because I know that it takes quite a money, a lot of money to keep the sacrifice system going. And that is more directly giving to God. So should I give to man, the poor, or should I give directly to God, the sacrifices? And uh, as she... Went, she was thinking about that. When she got to the temple. She was still thinking about that. And hadn't decided which it might be. But finally. She thought. I will give both. And she threw both of those mites. One into that box. And maybe one into that box. And Christ Jesus. You know. Saw that. And was blessed by that. Godly grace giving. When it's not hindered by deep poverty. As in the case of the Macedonians. They gave in spite of not having anything to give. In spite of having very little to give. The widow. She gave her living, Jesus said. Or we could say she gave her life. Because she gave everything. As I'm thinking about that. I think of a story that I read. Called the silver peso. And I might just read that to you here today. Maybe I'll skip a few words. Or a sentence or paragraphs. But here's that story. Thinking about that Godly grace-giving happens when it's not hindered even by very deep poverty. As the sun disappeared over the low green hills and the chill evening settled into the valley, Joseph walked faster along the road that led to the mission. As he thought of the huge crackling fire of logs and the steaming hot supper a little way ahead, he should have been cheerful. He was young and strong and not tired from walking. The evening was clear and lovely. A mockingbird sang himself to sleep... But Joseph's face was gloomy. One hand thrust deep into his trousers pocket clutched his last peso. The feel of it made him angry. It was all he had in the world except for the bundle of clothes under his arm. It had been a bad year for Joseph. Bitter and discouraged, he had started to walk south into Mexico. All his money spent except one silver peso. As he walked along, a wicked idea shaped itself in his mind. He knew that in the church at the mission were four beautiful candlesticks brought all the way across the water from Spain. Slender candles were always kept burning in them. He said to myself, I will steal a candlestick and carry it under my coat down into Mexico where I will sell it. Then I will have more money to put with my one peso. In a few minutes, Joseph sat before the fire, the padre, the priest himself smiling and greeting. No man was asked at the mission who he was or why he had come, for each was welcome. In the name of God, to meals, a bed, and whatever he needed for for his comfort. At last Joseph rose and silently tiptoed to the door of the church. There burned the four candles in their silver candlesticks. Joseph returned to the fire muttering, I wish to sleep now. The padre bowed his head and answered, may God bless your slumber. The boy will show you to your room. When he was alone, he he looked around carefully to discover whether it would be possible to escape quietly in the night with one of the candlesticks. Nothing could be easier, for the the room had no door and opened out on the grass plot behind the church. Within the room, the only furniture was a bed, bed and a small table. On the table stood a bowl of the rough kind of pottery made by Indians. As Joseph sat his Set his candle down on the table. The light gleamed on something bright. He looked closer and was amazed to find the bowl half filled with copper and silver coins. His first thought was that the last man who had slept in the room had put the money on the table and then forgotten it. He started eagerly to pour the coins into his pocket, but they made such a jangling noise he was frightened. The padre might hear and, of course, would immediately take possession of all his wealth. As he handled the treasure very softly, he noticed words scratched on the sides of the bull. Holding it close, he read, Let him who stands in greatest need take from this bull and go forth in peace. Joseph read these words over and over before he realized their significance. The money was kept there so that any guest who was very poor might help himself. No one had counted it before he came, and no one would count after he left. He might take only one small coin or none, or the entire bull full, and... Still, he was free to go away with the Padre's blessing, having received a night's lodging, good food and money, and himself given nothing. For a long time, Joseph sat on the bed and thought about this. There was no reason why he should not take the money with the one peso already in his pocket and perhaps take the candlestick besides. His need was certainly great. Had he not not lost all his cattle, failed to find the gold, and stood now without a thing in the world except one coin and a few clothes, It was meant for such as he. As for the candlestick, well, he would leave the candlestick. It was wicked to steal. He was young and strong and could find work easily. He would take only part of the money from the bull, but first he would sleep. Joseph lay on his back, wide awake and quiet. Since he had decided not to steal the candlestick, he felt as though a load had been lifted from his heart. He stroked the great muscles of his arms and thought, how strong I am. The words on the bull who stands in greatest need kept running through his head. After all, with strength, with strength like his, why should he take this money? Others would need it more. He turned over and closed his eyes, but the face of poor people sitting before the fire came continually before him. There was an old woman and two orphan girls. Suddenly, Joseph leaped from his bed. He searched hurriedly in his trousers pocket for the one silver peso and dropped it with a loud clink into the bowl. It would be for those whose need was greater than his. With a smile, he lay down and fell asleep. One knows that it's actually godly grace giving when it's not hindered even by, when the giving is not hindered even in a great, deep poverty. Another way that you and I can know whether our giving is really godly grace giving is, I'm still in verse 2, if it's done with joy. Do you see that there? For the Macedonians, they had an abundance of joy, an abundance of their joy. Now we would think that a great trial of affliction coupled with deep poverty would lead to sadness and would lead to not giving. But when you insert joy there, the Macedonians from almost 2,000 years ago teach us rich American Christians a wonderful lesson that when there's a deep trial or when there's a great trial, coupled with joy, coupled with deep poverty, we can give and enjoy doing it. Joy when it's done with an abundance of joy for the Macedonians back then being able to give was a blessing, it wasn't a burden at all. And what a joy that would that gave! And that brings us to the thought and the truth that giving isn't so much about the money as it is about the condition of the person's heart, right? Not the money but the condition of of the the heart. And when a heart has been set free by the blood of Christ, then giving is nothing but a blessing. Another thing that we should think about just for a minute in verse 2, still in verse 2, is when it's generous. How do we know that our that our giving is actually godly grace giving and is done for the right reasons? Well, one proof can be if we do it generously. Do you see that phrase? Unto the riches of their liberality. They were liberal. These people were liberal in all the right ways. Liberal because they were giving liberally. Do you see in verse 3... that another way that we can test our giving and our attitude for giving, whether we, can, whether we are really giving in the godly grace way, is if we give in a proportionate way. For to their power I bear record. They gave what they could. They gave what they had. They gave proportionately. They didn't, they, yes, they, they gave proportionately, and as we think of a proportion, your mind, I'm suspecting that your mind went to the tithe, which is 10% proportion. That was Old Testament, and that was the minimum, really, and I think that it's a tremendous base to think about giving. the tithe, which is a picture of how God owns everything. We should give at least a tithe, I'm sure. But we should probably give more. The Bible talks about tithes and offerings. We should give more than that. And isn't it all, am I not right, correct me afterward if I'm not, am I not right to think that on this issue of proportionately, that as riches increase in our lives, typically, generally, in the United States, that the older one gets, as as he goes from his 20s and his 30s, and then to the 40s and 50s and 60s, generally, often, our experience has been that the older we get, the longer we've been working, the older our children get and help us along with finances that generally the older we get, the longer it goes, the richer we get. And the more financially stable we become. I kind of think so. If, If that's the case, since that's the case, if that's the case, shouldn't we also be giving more proportionately shouldn't our proportion go up too? And I'm just asking for myself and maybe for you. So if 20 years ago you gave 10%, shouldn't it be a little bit more higher percentage now? Just a thought as, as we think about proportionately. But 2 Corinthians 8.3 goes beyond that too. These Macedonian Christians... These young, new, baby Christians didn't only give proportionately, but they gave beyond their power. They didn't only give what they could, but Paul says that they gave more than they could. Now, that's kind of an oxymoron. How can that be? Well, the principle is certainly that we can know that we're doing, that we're giving for the right reasons in the godly, grace-giving way when we do it sacrificially when we give they gave and gave with selfless abandon as somebody has said and when they got to their limit of what they could give then they gave more they just blew past that limit and believed and gave more for to their power I bear record yea and beyond their power they were willing I think one of the reasons that they were able to do that is because they believed Matthew 6:33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I believe that they believed Philippians 4:19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. I think of another analogy. Uh, bear with me just a little bit here. So, when there's peach trees bearing peaches, they always... Uh, On a typical crop, they need to be thinned. And some of the peaches need to be taken off for a couple different reasons. Number one, so that the ones that are left get to be a nice size and marketable and profitable. Number two, uh, at least some fruit is that way. Ken and people like that would know more about it than I do. But another reason to thin is so that there's a return bloom and a return crop next year. If we let too many on this year, the tree could uh, be using too much energy to grow these peaches and won't have anything left for next year. One of the most popular varieties is Red Haven. One of the most popular ones in the area for years. And they especially have a tendency of not getting quite big enough. And so for Red Haven, I remember years ago, it was said that a wise old grower said, when you're working with Red Haven, you need to thin and thin and thin until you're just sure that you took way too many off. Don't quit until you're just sure that you took off too many. And then when you get down to the end of the row, then you go back up that same row and take off a bunch more. I, th- I thought of that when I thought about these Macedonians who were willing to go as far as they could and then they were willing to go even further. I thought, too, about the story that Richie Lauer gave when he was here a couple years ago. He has a sister, and she she's kind of a windy sister, I think he would have implied. And you probably remember this story. And she... Her, his married sister, told him one day about their dream house that she and her husband had found. And she was willing to tell Rich uh, Richie about how it looked outside and all those kind of things, how nice it was outside. And he said, well, haven't you been inside? And she said, no, it's not for sale. It hasn't come up for sale. So she was just off dreaming about this house that they'd like but who's to say that it would ever become for sale? Not long after that, they, at their church, there was a a mission, a ministry that came and talked about their ministry. And she and her husband were pretty impressed about that mission. And so when the offering was passed, her husband put in a substantial amount, he thought, on the way home, they talked about this and what, she, what he had given. And I think that she indicated that that wasn't really enough. We should have given more. And so they, just, they knowing that they were wanting to buy a house, eventually had saved up maybe $30,000 for a down payment on their house. So. At this point now, they decided they're going to give 10,000 of that 30 to this ministry, which they did. And not after a while, her husband came to him, came to her, and said, you know, I think that we should give more. So they gave another 10,000 to that ministry. And a while later her husband came to her again and she said, no, 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 I know what you're going to say. No, we can't do that, we can't. But they decided eventually that they are going to give their last $10,000 to that ministry. And the next week that dream house came up for sale. And they went to see it, but there was nothing they could do about it. The real estate agent showed them around. They told him that, they like the house, but they can't. A year later, the agent called them and said, we really want, I think you should buy this house. And they said, well, we can't. We can't. He arranged for it that they could. And they bought, were able to buy that dream house of theirs. They lived in it for a while. And Richie Lauer said that they sold it again at the height of some housing bubble and... Only just to say that one cannot outgive out give God. I'm not saying that that's going to be the case for you, and that you, and that giving and giving isn't going to keep you poor because it could. It did in the case of the Macedonians, I believe, but giving till we really, really sacrifice. I think we in our setting here. Can learn from just trusting the Lord and going beyond our power in giving to the needs of other people. Not only proportionately, but sacrificially, going beyond, above and beyond. Well, verse three would also indicate and tells us that another way that we know another of godly grace giving is to do it voluntarily they were willing of themselves it was voluntary. voluntary nobody told them what to give or to give or how much to give it was voluntary it's an it's a issue between me and God between Wanda and I and God between you and God voluntary verse 4 is an interesting verse a wonderful verse and maybe we've touched on something similar here before, but verse, look at verse 4. When, when it's a great privilege to be allowed to contribute to the needs of other people, when it's a great privilege, then we know that we're on the right track and that it's godly grace-giving that is motivating us and not, uh, not other factors like what others are expecting and others are doing, tax breaks, control... Factors and that kind of thing. When, it, when, we're allowed, when it's a great privilege to be allowed to participate, I'm just guessing that maybe Paul would have thought earlier that, well, the Macedonians can't help with his offering. They can't help with the needs of the Jerusalem saints because they don't have anything themselves. But they came to Paul praying us with much entreaty. And the more modern, imploring us with great urgency Please let us help. Wow. NIV would say, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Makes me think of the story of the rich people in our church. Maybe you remember that story. There was a mom with a couple children, with a couple daughters went to church and the pastor said that we're going to in a month from now at Easter time we're going to take an offering for a poor family so please give sacrificially to this offering so that we can bless this poor family well these this mom and children went home mom and daughters went home and thought about what they could do and they decided that they're for a month they're they're only going to eat potatoes. They bought a 50-pound bag of potatoes. This was back in the 40s. And they didn't eat much besides, except potatoes so that they could give to the poor people offering. And they sat in the dark at night and didn't use their electricity and were able to save some money that way. They, they were, tried babysitting as much as they could and trying to come up with everything that they could. And at the end of the month, they had $80, the four of them, and they thought, well, there's so many people in our church, maybe about 50 people in our church, and if everybody would give $20, let's see, how, what, what would that be? So they went to church that morning and were wanting to give their offering. And it was raining, and they didn't have a car, and they had a mile to walk to church. But they sang as they went to church because they, they didn't have new clothes for Thanksgiving but they had $80 for the offering so they put the money into the offering and later that afternoon the pastor came to see them and turned out that he gave them the money that had been collected and I forget, I think maybe there was maybe $117 all total or something like that and they were so Disheartened. They hadn't known that they were poor. So the next week of their lives, the next week they just went about their, it was an awful week. They didn't want to go to church the next Sunday, but their mom said they have to, and it was a real nice, sunny, glorious day, and the mom tried singing on the way to church, but then only sang one stanza, and nobody helped just That Sunday at church, there was a missionary there that was talking about conditions in Africa or somewhere like that and said that they can build, house, they can build church houses over there pretty much from scratch with the materials on hand, but it take, costs $100 to put a roof on a new church house. And these four ladies sitting in the, one of the pews looked at each other and smiled, the story says, for the first time in a week. And so the pastor said, well, let's take an offering for these poor people in Africa. And after the offering was lifted, the, uh, the missionary was so thrilled about things, he had, hadn't expected to get that much from this small church. And he said, there must be some rich people in this church. you know, of course, that these four ladies had put their money that they had gotten the Sunday before into the offering for the poor people in Africa. And I could have told this story at about any point in the sermon. I could have told that story when we were talking about how when it's done in spite of difficult and difficult circumstances, because... I didn't tell you before that their dad had died. So the mom was a widow. I could have told that story when we were talking about uh, deep poverty, or when it's done with an abundance of joy, or when it's generous, or when it's sacrificial, or when it's voluntary, or when it's a great privilege to be allowed to participate. But let's go on and think just a little bit about verse 5. They first gave their own selves to the Lord. So, our giving is godly, and it's godly grace giving when we, when giving is part of worship. When it's an act of worship. They first gave themselves, and then they gave their money. That's the right order, exactly. Exactly. First, we surrender to the Lord and do what he says, and then we give. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We also know that we are on the right track in our giving and that it's godly grace giving when, verse 7, when Our giving synchronizes with the rest of our life. Do you see that there? Paul says of the Corinthians that they abound in faith and in utterance and in knowledge and in diligence and in love. See that you abound also in giving. Giving is just part of the Christian experience. Giving is a part of the Christian life. When our giving synchronizes and and it's consistent with the rest of our life. And you didn't think that I would preach a sermon about, on this subject without reminding us of what John Yu often has said that Milo Kaufman used to say. Milo Kaufman was a Mennonite man who wrote a book on stewardship. And he said, and John Yu used to quote him a lot, See if I can get, if I need help here, John, I'll ask you. See if I can get it together. Um, Mr. Kaufman said that a person that is wrong in money matters tends to be wrong in lots of other areas of life as well. But a person that is right on money matters tends to be right in just about anything else or is easily set right. Well, in closing, let's look at verse 8. Ultimately, our giving will be godly grace-giving when it proves the sincerity of our love. Do you see that? In verse 8, to prove the sincerity of your love. Ultimately, love for God and love for others, others in need. Our love... And God can tell how much we love him by how much we love other people and prove that by our giving. As I think of that, the proving the sincerity of our love, well, I think of people like you. You have just proved again, once again, your love for us and our family by offerings that you've taken, given This year again, and then there was the October um, Pastors Appreciation Month, and we thank you. Wanda and I and our children thank you for your generosity, for that token, those tokens of your love for us. And we certainly want to return that love. We love you. So we've just come through Thanksgiving season, right? Yeah. Last Thursday was Thanksgiving. And it occurs to me that if we're really thankful, if we are really grateful people, then naturally we will be generous. And naturally we will be involved in the godly grace giving type of giving. May, may that just be the case with me. May that be the case with you as we go through this next week it's the week after Thanksgiving week it seems like this season of the year should be a time especially of not only gratitude but but proving that we are grateful to the Lord by our generosity and our giving to others in need will you kneel with me for prayer Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your manifold and wonderful blessings to us. If we should count them, they'd be in number like the sand. We are so wondrously blessed and we thank you. It's the grace of God that has given us these many, many wonderful blessings. All kinds of blessings, Lord. Physical blessings, material blessings, spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for that and desire to live out that gratitude in our lives by generosity and helping other people in any and every way that we can and especially in financial ways when we give of our money, our resources, that which we have to help others. Could be others in need on the next block. Could be others in need on the other side of the world. Thank you for the opportunities that we have to give, even in our church setting. We gave this morning to Missions Interest Committee, who has missions in various parts of the world, and I pray that as that that money goes to help others in various ways, that indeed it could be a blessing and could point others to the Lord Jesus, and that your kingdom could be advanced. And Lord, as you continue to bless us, we want to continually serve you and love you more and more, Heavenly Father, until that day when you come for us, when you take us home, so that we can forever be with the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.